Well, I invite you to take your Bibles to begin with and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Well, this conference is centered around the theme of prophecy in particular, and certainly with the events transpiring in the Middle East right now, these events have people's attention. I've had a number of people ask me, where's this going? What's going to happen next? In fact, the unsaved are even wondering, what's going to happen next in the Middle East? Politicians want to know so they can plan. Military strategists want to know what Iran and some of the other major players are doing. Some people are talking about World War III. Will that happen next? And then there are the economists who are looking at the global economy and trying to figure out where is this headed? How high will inflation go? Are we headed for another Great Depression as part of a Great Reset and so forth? So what are the next events prophetically that God has planned for this world? Well, I'll tell you, you can put all that aside for the time being because there's one event he has planned for us as a church that is the next event on his prophetic calendar, and that is the rapture. Now, the subject of the rapture has been popularized in the last three decades or so, largely due to a best-selling series of fictional books called the Left Behind series, authored by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. In fact, there were 12 volumes to this series, and I have to confess I haven't read any one of them. Not because I'm against them, but I just don't have time to read fiction, let alone nonfiction and the Word of God. But if, if you want to read that, that's fine. But largely due to the popularity of this series, now the word rapture has become ensconced in the you know, American English uh, language and has been popularized. But there have been scoffers and skeptics that responded to this as well. There was one man named Gary DeMar who wrote a book called End Times Fiction. In fact, he subtitled the book, A Biblical Consideration of the Left Behind Theology. In other words, not a biblical theology, he thinks, but a left behind made up theology. And he calls it fiction, as though it's not fact. And then there's the Roman Catholic response. There was a book by Carl Olson called Will Catholics Be Left Behind? And we know the answer to that biblically. If you're a saved Catholic who's put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be left behind. But if you're an unsaved Catholic, like many, like I was, who doesn't see the sufficiency of Christ's work, then indeed you will be left behind. You'll miss the rapture. There was also another book written by a Roman Catholic named Paul Thigpen, forward by Marcus Grody, who on the EWTN network has a program called Coming Home in which he interviews and here's the testimonies of many who've converted to Catholicism. Very sad to listen to, actually. But this is the Catholic response to the end times fever called the rapture trap. And as you think of end times fever, that's the title at the top of the book, a fever implies that you're sick, right? And so if you've been captured by this pre-trib rapture theology, you know, you need to get better and get well, because apparently you are sick. And then there was a book by Barbara Rossing, a Lutheran minister and professor of theology, or as uh, Brother Kevin might say, part of the clergy. 
I laughed over and over again last night as he said that. <laughs> she wrote a book called The Rapture Exposed, and she has a historicist perspective, excuse me, an idealist perspective on the rapture, and she tries to refute it. And then there's a book called The So-Called Rapture by Saul Cortez, who says it's really not going to be this physical resurrection, you know, for the church, etc. It's more of a spiritualized concept. And then there was a response to Left Behind called Left Behind Deception, Revealing Dangerous Errors About the Rapture and the Antichrist by Steve Walber. And then Satan's Rapture Trap by James Isaacson. The Rapture Will Be Cancelled by Nicholas Arthur. And you know, in our cancer culture today, doesn't that kind of fit? But the subtitle is Exposing the Left Behind Rapture Deception, a Modern Historicist View on the Current Events in biblical prophecy. And so, keep bumping the black button here, I think. Something happened. We lost it. My PowerPoint got raptured. <laughs> we, we need a great reset here. <laughs> Yeah.
Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank God for the tech guys, right? That's what all our lives have come to <laughs> with, with tech today, right? And as, as I was saying, there are all these books that have responded to the rapture. In fact, this is just a sampling of a few of them. And here's the, other, the last one I mentioned. The rapture will be canceled. Now, that's man's perspective because if God has determined that there's going to be a rapture, he's promised it in his word, it'll never be canceled. Now, here's a, an amazing title for a book. And this is not made up. This is an actual book you can purchase. Why I Want to Be Left Behind. Who would write such a book if they knew what the Bible says? And obviously, don't, this author doesn't believe it. Here's another one by a similar title. I Want to Be Left Behind by Tim Kirk. Now, isn't that shocking? Now, we're going to learn with the prophetic events coming tomorrow. We'll learn about this, that you definitely don't want to be left behind. Nobody should be left behind. It'll be the time of God's wrath after the rapture and the tribulation. And God wants to save people from that. But what is this rapture that we've been talking about? Well, I had you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because this is really a central passage that describes this teaching of the Bible. Now, the rapture is mentioned in other passages as well. But I think 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through chapter 5, verse 11, are the, is the primary passage in all of the New Testament giving the details about this event. So we're going to read through it together. Let's read verse 13. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, and the unbeliever has no hope. In contrast to the unbeliever, we as believers, verse 14, believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that's a summary condensed statement of the gospel, I believe Paul is saying here. But if we believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, that's not people who have drifted off during a church service. That's people who have, have died in Christ. <laughs> Those who sleep in Jesus are believers who have physically died. It's as though their body is in the ground, and their soul and spirit are now with the Lord, awaiting resurrection. And Paul is saying here that they're going to be resurrected at the rapture, and, and we will be resurrected at that time as well, we who are alive. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, and this is authoritative truth, divine revelation coming from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, the rapture generation, until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. And so what this is teaching is the dead in Christ, those who preceded us in physical death, who are part of the church, will be caught up just before us, but we'll be together with them in the rapture. We won't be separated by a large interval of time. And the result is we should comfort one another with these words. Now, it is not comforting to think that we're going to go through any portion of the tribulation. 
This is a key point when it comes to establishing what the New Testament teaches about the timing of this rapture event. Going on in chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, and everybody wants to know how close are we getting to the rapture. And I can tell you on the authority of the word of God, though I'm no prophet, the answer is, we are one day closer than we were yesterday. <laughs> Romans 13, 11. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, and that's not a reference to the rapture, but to the time of the tribulation that comes after the rapture. And there might be an interval of time between the rapture and the starting of the tribulation. We don't know how long of an interval that might be. Nevertheless, it says the day of the Lord, the time of judgment, so comes as a thief in the night when the world is not expecting it. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, and notice the shift in pronouns here. He's talking about they, the world, and them. Now he's shifting back to believers in Jesus Christ. And so he switches from third-person pronouns back to second-person pronouns. And this is an important point because each time Paul does this in Scripture, he's distinguishing the fate of the lost, they and them, from the destiny of believers, which is different. And he's saying here, don't live your life like the unbeliever because you're going to heaven, they're going to hell, so don't you live like you're on your way to hell when in fact you're on your way to heaven. That's his whole point here. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. And by the way, that day won't overtake believers in Christ like a thief because we won't be here. We'll be caught up as the previous chapter just explained. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And so, we see here twice he mentions this aspect of comfort, the end of chapter 4 and here in verse 11. And the teaching of the rapture should not be something that is scary to believers. In fact, it should be a blessed hope and a tremendous source of of comfort. And so what this event is explaining is that moment in time in which we as a church will be caught up instantaneously, I believe. And I don't know that the world will see us go. In fact, it's doubtful because 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52 say it will happen instantaneously. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is something not revealed in the Old Testament. Did the Old Testament ever describe the church? No. And so this truth pertaining to the church and its resurrection wasn't revealed in the Old Testament either. That we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And people often say, this is a great verse for the nursery. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
Now that word for moment in the Greek text is atom, which was the English word used when scientists thought they had found the smallest particle that could ever be known to man. Now we know the atom can be split, and there's a subatomic level. But at any rate, that, that Greek word is atom, speaking of an indivisible unit of time. As quick as the blink of an eye will be gone and changed in a moment at the last trumpet. And by the way, that's the last trumpet for the church that signals the Lord's appearing, because in the tribulation there will be other trumpets, seven. And chronologically, the last trumpet of the tribulation is not the church's. In fact, Christ will come back at the end of the tribulation, and so there's another trumpet chronologically there. But we'll be changed. So here's the general prophetic scenario. You've seen this prophecy chart already in this conference, but it's worth a general overview for our context and understanding's sake. We are living right now after the cross and resurrection of our Savior. The Holy Spirit then descended on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the church was born. And the church has lasted now some 2,000 years. And the last day on earth for the church, before all hell breaks loose, is going to be the day of the rapture. We will be caught up, just as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. And right at the time of that great change of our bodies, where we get a new glorified body, we lose our sin nature. In conjunction with that, we go through the judgment seat of Christ, where each of us have our individual Christian lives evaluated to determine whether or not or how much of a reward we will get. Or how we lived our Christian life. Our good works will be rewarded, our faithfulness. So there's a motivation to want to serve the Lord. We're saved by grace, apart from our works, but then we're sanctified in our Christian life by His grace, resulting in works, and those works then are rewarded for all eternity. And it'll all be that moment at the judgment seat of Christ. But after that occurs, then there will be seven years of tribulation on the earth, which we'll hear more about tomorrow. That'll be the time of great testing for the world and the testing for Israel. There'll be an antichrist who develops a one-world system and, and rules over that. And then we will come back with Jesus Christ at his second coming to the earth, where he sets up his kingdom on the earth. The, the first phase of that is a 1,000-year earthly kingdom reign. And then, of course, there'll be the great white throne and new heavens and new earth, etc. But the event we're talking about is this event right here, known as the rapture, catching up of all church-age saints. Now, when we use this word rapture, we need to understand that though it's in our English vocabulary, it's actually based on a Latin word. In fact, the verb form, the root verb form of that Latin word is rapio. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the Greek word that's used there for caught up, that expression, is harpazo. As it was explained last night, that this is where we get the English word harpoon. And when you think of a harpoon, what do you think of? A sailor? You know, sometimes a harpoon is shot out of a gun at a whale, and then it's uh, got a pulley system to retrieve that whale or fish to the boat. And so it speaks of a forcible seizing. And the second thing we need to understand about the word rapture caught up, translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is that that 
Greek word is used 14 times in the New Testament, twice elsewhere in the New King James translation. It's translated caught up in 2 Corinthians 12.2 of Paul's experience, caught up to the third heaven, and in Revelation 12.5. But it's used 14 times, and in every context you will see it carries the idea of a forcible removal or to remove stealthily. And by stealthily or stealing, I don't mean in a negative moral way, because obviously Jesus Christ coming and stealing away the church from the earth is not a sinful event, but rather it speaks of the nature of that, that it's done quickly and probably in a way in which the world may not even see it happen, like a thief in the night, snatched from the earth. In fact, this term is used in that great eternal security passage of John 10, 28 and 29, where Jesus says and I, to, about believers, that I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And that word snatch out of hand, there snatch is the word for, it's, it's harpazo in the Greek text. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Same term used twice in that passage. So that's the idea there. And so when you see this and you know this, you know that harpazo, catching up, is a very biblical concept. And the reason why this is significant for us as believers to, to understand is because there will be those who say that the rapture is not even in the Bible. It's a made-up fictional concept. Oh no, that just shows they're ignorant of what the Bible says. Very biblical. Now, the word rapture, in terms of that exact English word, may not be used in the Bible in our translations. But there again, when you know it comes from the Latin, rapio, then you know that, hey, there's some ten to 12,000 Latin manuscripts that New Testament textual critics rely upon for translation. And it's obviously there. So if you look at a Latin version of the New Testament, for, go to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, you'll see a verb form based on repeal. By the way, is it wrong to say that even though an exact word isn't found in the Bible, that the concept isn't biblical? Just think of the word Trinity. Is that biblical? Absolutely biblical. The Bible says that the Father is God, the Bible says the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet the Bible also says that there's one God. So what is our deduction? That there must be three persons in the one being who is God. That's the Godhead. That's the Trinity. That's a thoroughly biblical concept, though you won't find the term Trinity in the Bible. Now, besides the church's rapture, are there any other raptures in the Bible of sorts? Well, certainly. There was the catching up of Enoch before the flood. Remember, he walked with God and then he was not. He was gone. The world probably didn't even see him go. And then there was Elijah who went up in a chariot of fire. And then, as you skip ahead to the New Testament, there's the classic example of Philip, the evangelist, who in Acts chapter 8, it says that he was preaching in a town, and then, whoop, he got beamed up, and he found himself at Azotus, another town uh, several miles away. God had transported him. So can God do these rapture kind of miraculous events? Certainly. If he can do it for an individual, he can do it for the whole church. So there's a great event 
yet ahead for us. And I want to say this, that just because the rapture might seem strange to some people, doesn't mean it's unprecedented biblically. God did it for a few, he can do it for a bunch coming up. Now another foundational concept we want to look at this morning before we look at evidences biblically for a pre-tribulation rapture is this concept of how do we interpret scripture when it comes to these passages on the rapture. We need to interpret them consistently, literally, as Pastor Kevin mentioned last night. And I'm just going to mention in passing a few points here, because he covered this in more depth last night, that of the four major approaches to interpreting the Bible, the only approach that consistently literally interprets the Bible is what we would call futurism or the futurist approach. We saw last night that there's preterism based on the Latin word preter, which means past, that interprets most or, or some say all prophecies related to the second coming of Christ as having already been fulfilled by AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Roman armies. And so, in order to interpret Scripture that way, the preterist has to look at, you know, metaphorical meaning instead of a, a literal meaning. Or they, they interpret things figuratively. And they use a great deal of imagination when it comes to uh, passages about the second coming and the rapture. For example, they interpret the book of Revelation as having already been fulfilled in the first century. And the Antichrist... Of Revelation 13, they thought was Caesar Nero, who died in AD 68. When it comes to the statements in Matthew, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 28, Jesus said, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. And they see the word, these preterists see the word eagles, and they don't think Philadelphia football team. They think, oh, in that first century, that would have obviously triggered the thought, of the Romans because what was the symbol of the Roman Empire? It was an eagle at that time. So where the eagles are gathered, well that must speak of the destruction of the Roman army coming into the land of Israel in the, in the late 60s and destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. This is how they reason. So that's the preterist approach saying scripture has been fulfilled in the past and in particular within that first century. And then there's the historicist view of interpretation, followed by a lot of Seventh-day Adventists. Many of the Protestant reformers took this view. And they just expand the, the timeline or horizon for events to be fulfilled past the first century. And they say, really, all down through the ages of, of church history, for 2,000 years, Scripture can be fulfilled. That's why many of the reformers thought that the popes were the Antichrist. But again, my point is this, this is a non-literal approach to interpreting Scripture. And then there's that idealist approach, which is the most dreamy and imaginative and creative method of interpretation possible. It looks at these events that the Bible describes and says, ah, they're not going to happen as historical events in the future. It's all designed just to create an artistic picture for us. It's all poetry in essence to get at a spiritual point that we're supposed to glean from all these prophecy passages. And really, that's just unbelief. When the Bible says, this is what's going to happen, and you say, no, it's not going to happen, but I'm going to just take away a spiritual kernel from all that. That's unbelief. 
And it's sad to say, but a lot of these uh, people who hold these different views are not even truly saved because they haven't believed the gospel. So that's the, the bigger problem. So we hold to a futurist view of these passages pertaining to the second coming. It hasn't happened yet. And a consistently literal interpretation leads to the conclusion that Christ's coming for his church will be both pre-millennial, before the millennium, and pre-tribulational, before the tribulation. And just to get our bearings again here on a prophecy chart, you see the church age, the next event is the rapture, in between seven years of tribulation, then we come back with Christ to the earth, at the second coming, or return to the earth, I should say, and then the millennial phase. So our perspective is that Christ will come back before the millennium. Let's just start there. That's the bigger landing point. By the way, interpreting the Bible as teaching that Jesus Christ will come back before a literal 1,000-year kingdom was the view of the early church for the first several centuries by the majority of interpreters. And we can support this with uh, many quotations, but not, we won't for time's sake. Now, by the way, I just want to mention, if you've ever uh, looked at the pre-trib rapture website, they have a lot of writings now from the early church fathers they've discovered where, surprise, surprise, guess what? The early church not only was pre-millennial, but there are more and more statements being found where they were also pre-tribulational. So just stick around long enough and uh, evidence will come forth to support what the Bible has said all along. There's also the view of amillennialism, which says that there really won't be a 1,000-year kingdom. It's just spiritualized in some sense. This, is, again, is a non-literal approach to interpretation held by Eastern Orthodox, many Roman Catholic interpreters, and many Protestants. Um, no millennium. And this was popularized by Augustine, primarily, who launched this view and sent the church into the Dark Ages uh, around the year 400 A.D. And then in uh, more recent centuries, there's been the view that's, I wouldn't say become popular, but it's out there, of post-millennialism. And this teaches that Christ will come back after the millennium, where we, in essence, as a church, bring in the kingdom, and then the king comes on the tail end of that. It's all backwards. And like Pastor Roxer mentioned last night, are we in the kingdom? Are we building the kingdom? Doesn't seem like it. Man, if this is the best it gets, and it's getting darker, uh, I must not be in the kingdom. I must be in the ghetto section or something. So we looked at views pertaining to the millennium. What about the tribulation? Well, as it pertains to the tribulation, getting more specific, there are some who hold a mid-trib rapture view, where Christ will come back and take his church out of here at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then there are those who hold to a partial rapture view, in which case some of them say it's going to be some of the church will be raptured before the tribulation or perhaps by the midpoint of the tribulation. And if you're one of the worthy ones, then you get to be raptured in the church. But the Bible teaches, actually, that all believers will be raptured, not just the worthy ones. Frankly, who here is worthy of our future glorification and glorified body? That's a grace event, right? 
so is the rapture. And then there's the post-trib rapture view, which to me makes the least sense of any of these views, that Christ will come at the end of the tribulation and the church will be caught up and then come right back down to the earth. Some call that the yo-yo theory. And then there's a variation somewhere between the mid-trib and post-trib view that's been popular within the last 30 years, um, promoted by Marvin Rosenthal, the one-time director, formal director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And this is a three-quarter tribulation view that is called pre-wrath rapture because they claim that God's wrath doesn't start till that three-quarter point of the tribulation. But for the first three quarters, they say, it is Satan's wrath or man's wrath, but God's wrath doesn't start till the three-quarter point. And we're going to see that that's not true. And then lastly, the view that I think the Bible teaches very clearly, as we'll see evidences for this, is a pre-tribulation rapture. So having gone over those different viewpoints and getting that perspective, now let's dive into Scripture and look at evidences for why the Bible teaches we will be raptured before this great time of tribulation that is coming. And the first support for this is found in the distinctions in the descriptions of Scripture about the rapture versus the return. Two separate events separated by at least seven years. For instance, when it comes to the rapture of the church, this is not something that was revealed in the Old Testament. It was only revealed to the church. And why? Because it is an event that only pertains to the church. So why would God reveal it to Israel if it didn't pertain to them. He didn't reveal it to them. It's new when it comes to the church age, new revelation. Whereas the Old Testament clearly describes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the earth to set up his kingdom, a coming in power and great glory to rule and reign, that was revealed. So there's a contrast there. Likewise, when it comes to the rapture, the church is said to be caught up at this event. Whereas with the return to the earth, there's no catching up described in those passages that, that describe his return to the earth. Now, some will say, well, what about Matthew 24, verse 31, where it says that he'll send forth his angels and gather up his elect from the four winds? Well, wind, boy, I think of air. And when I think of air, I think of being caught up, like 1 Thessalonians 4. So is, is that describing the rapture? No. When it says four winds there, it's very clear that he's speaking of north, south, east, and west, the four quarters of the earth, like Deuteronomy 30, 3 through 5 explains, and other Old Testament passages. So there is a distinction there. A third distinction is that the rapture event will deal only with the saved. As we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's those who sleep in Jesus or the dead in Christ will arise. And like Pastor Roxer explained last night with the church, you will not find the expression in Christ prior to the church age. Old Testament saints would be saved by the future payment of Jesus Christ the Messiah, but they were never said to be in Christ positionally. That's true only of the church. So we could narrow this down and say it deals with the saved and specifically the saved of the church age. Whereas when it comes to the return to the earth, that is an event 
that involves both the saved and the lost in its descriptions. Matthew 13, where Jesus speaks of the um, parable of the sower and the seed, he says that the angels will be sent forth to separate the wheat from the tares, the saved from the lost. And so that is an event involving saved and lost. When it comes to the rapture, this is an event where Christ comes for his bride, the church, whereas the return, after at least seven years, describes Christ coming with his bride, the church. It's another key distinction. Here's a fifth distinction. That with the rapture, saints travel to heaven. The direction is from earth to heaven. When Jesus, in John 14, was going to be crucified the next day, he gave church-age truth. In essence, the upper room discourse is like the epistle of 4th John, if you will. It's very uh, church-age, New Testament truth-oriented. Grace truth. And in that passage in John 14, 1 through 3, he says, And if I go away... I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, namely heaven, where I've built a house for you, a dwelling place, there you will be also. But notice, I'll come again and receive you to myself. The direction is from earth to heaven, not from heaven to earth. And when we see in Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ to the earth, his return, the, the direction is clearly Heaven to earth. It's different. Here's a sixth distinction. With the rapture, it is a meeting in the air. And with the return, it is a meeting on the earth. With the rapture, it's preceded by no signs. And that's why it's imminent, as Pastor Roxer will explain in the next session this morning. Whereas when it comes to his return to the earth, it will be preceded by a lot of signs. In fact, if you know your Bible and you're alive in the tribulation, not you, but for the unsaved left behind who get saved during that time and they read their Bibles, they'll see that God has put all these sign markers to let people know they're in the tribulation time and Christ's coming back to the earth is drawing near and near for them. So they have signs to go by. We don't. And these will be universally recognized. Every eye will see him at his return to the earth, the Bible says, even the unsaved. An eighth distinction is that when it comes to the rapture, this could have happened at any moment, or could happen at any moment. James 5 speaks of Jesus Christ being right at the door. You know, picture a closed door, those doors right there to my left. It's as though Jesus is standing right behind him, and all he has to do is push the door open, and he arrives right here for us. He's that close, and he has remained that close for 2,000 years. Again, Pastor Rox will explain more of that in the next session. But that is not true of the return to the earth. When Christ comes back to the earth, it's going to be preceded by at least seven years of events that have to take place first. And so there's a distinction there. Likewise, with the rapture, Christ comes in the midst of peace, or at least I should say the start of the tribulation, seven years, comes at a time in which the world will be saying, peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes upon them. The rapture, of course, happens prior to that, and there might be some skirmishes and, and battles breaking out during the time of the rapture, we don't know. But one thing we know for sure with the return to the earth is that all the armies of the earth have gathered together to wipe out Israel, they think. 
That's the time of Armageddon. And that's very different from the description of the rapture. So again, the language in different passages show us these are not the same events. They have to be different. We've already read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that the rapture is an event in which God speaks in great comfort for believers. This is to provide us with hope and blessing and encouragement and comfort. Whereas the return to the earth is a time of his judgment on the world. Very different. So as you put these side by side, the only conclusion you can come away with is, hey, the Bible must be describing two different events. Some have said that the second coming of Christ is one event with two phases to it. If you want to put it that way, I have no problem either. As long as you recognize the rapture and return are very different. So not only do the distinctions in Scripture of these events support a pre-trib rapture, but the pre-trib view is also supported by recognizing there must be a necessary interval between the rapture of the church and the return of Christ to the earth. By necessary interval, I'm referring to the events of the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, where we are rewarded. And we don't know how long that will take or what the nature of that will be in heaven. But Revelation 4 describes the church as already having been rewarded. In chapter 5, as we'll see, the uh, church is praising the Lord. But then Revelation 19, 7 to 9, explain how his bride, the church, is giving, given her wedding garment. And that's before the return down to the earth. So those are events happening in heaven. And there must be an interval then between the rapture and the return for these things to be fulfilled. Here's a third evidence for a pre-trib rapture. That there is a difference between Israel and God's plan and program for them versus the church. And they have a distinct nature and purpose. And the same is true when it comes to the tribulation. Is the tribulation time ever said to be a time for the church? No. It's a time for the world to be tested and for Israel. Jesus said of that time, the tribulation, Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, I think Israel's sake, those days will be cut short. Otherwise, Israel would be annihilated at the end. He's going to intervene and save them. But notice Jesus says here that this is an unprecedented time in human history. The worst time up to this point. And you can't have two unprecedented time periods in Scripture, right? It has to describe one time. That's why in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, this time is described as a time of Jacob's trouble. Alas, for that day is great and there is none like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, a synonym for Israel, Jacob. But he shall be saved out of it. And we know from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that God has a 70-week program for the nation of Israel. And week there, in the Hebrew, means it's the word Shavua, which speaks of a unit of seven. And in its context, it speaks of a unit of seven years, not days. So don't think you know, 400, 490 days, think 490 years. 
483 of those have been fulfilled already. There's one period of seven years left to come. That is the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. But remember, who is that for? Daniel 9.24 says it's for you and your people, Daniel, Israel, not the church. So that's another important point where the church is never said to have as its purpose the tribulation, but Israel and the rest of the world does. A fourth point that supports a preacher of rapture view is understanding the timing of God's wrath being poured out on the world and how the church has been promised deliverance from this wrath to come. Here's a passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, that makes this very clear. For they themselves declare concerning us, those other Christians, what manner of entry we had when we came to you in Thessalonica is the idea, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and secondly, to wait for his Son from heaven. There's that direction again, from heaven to earth, whom he raised from the dead, by the way, when he comes from heaven to earth, we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and then taken back to the Father's house. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, note, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When you think of your Savior, Jesus Christ, he delivers us from the penalty of our sin, power of our sin, one day from the presence of sin. But you should think of him also with this description. He is the one who delivers you from the wrath to come. Why? Because he's already delivered you from all wrath of God. Later in the same epistle, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, For God did not appoint us to wrath. And here he doesn't say the wrath to come, that specific time of wrath, but here it's broader. He delivers us from all of God's wrath. And what instead does he appoint us to? To obtain Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. He's reminding us of his work at the cross. That whether we wake or sleep, and in the context that's in reference to carnal or spiritual. Remember, there are those who get drunk at night. Don't be like them. Don't be asleep when Jesus comes back. And so he's saying here, and this is a passage dealing, by the way, with debunking, debunking that idea of a partial rapture. He says, whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're out of it spiritually or in the game, you're going to be raptured. Why? Because Jesus died for all believers and even the unbelievers. But you as a believer have put your trust in him and therefore you're delivered from all wrath. Paul is arguing from the um, broader to the narrow. Christ has delivered us from all wrath, then you'll be delivered from the wrath to come. And what does the Bible teach very clearly? That Christ bore our wrath at Calvary. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having now been justified as a believer by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's a promise again. We are exempt from all wrath. Why? Because all God's wrath for our sin was poured out on our substitute, the Lord Jesus, at the cross. That was the greatest judgment that's ever happened in the history of the world, right there at Calvary. Every sin paid for in each of our lives, every human being who's ever lived. And when we put our faith or trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, at that moment we're born again, placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Jesus Christ, where God now sees us in his Son. He doesn't see us any longer in Adam, but in his Son, 
And when he sees his son, he sees the sufficiency of who he is and what he's done. And how can he condemn us any longer then? So once you're in Christ positionally, you are shielded from the wrath of God forever. So how could he then pour out his tribulation wrath on one who's in Christ? He won't. So the solution is he's going to take his church who are in Christ off the earth before he pours out this wrath. And this is a very important concept to understand that a person can be eternally saved regardless of what they believe about the timing of the rapture. Because this is the issue here that will save not only from tribulation wrath to come, but all of God's wrath, in fact, wrath in hell for eternity. That's a far greater problem. And that's where our focus should be in giving out the gospel. And I say this personally because, in my case, very rare, I know, but I was intrigued by Bible prophecy before I was saved. In fact, it was one means that God used to open my eyes to the truth of the gospel. So before I was saved, I went to B. Dalton Bookstore, actually had B. Dalton back then before what's popular today, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And I purchased this book that looked intriguing in the Christian section. The Late Great Planet Earth. Wow, that sure sounds like the world we're living in today. That's what I was thinking in, 19, in the 1980s by Hal Lindsey. So I read that book and I liked it. And then I went back and I got a second book by him. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And I read that too. And you know what? I believed what it had to say about the end-time prophetic events. And then I went back and found a third book. And who's this guy? Charles Ryrie? Never heard of him. Uh, the Final Countdown. Hmm, it's got some good graphics in there explaining millennium and tribulation. Hmm, I think I'll read this one. And I became convinced of the timing of the pre-trib rapture. But there was one problem. Had the rapture happened, I would have been left behind. Believing in a pre-trib rapture. You know why? Because I didn't get the gospel yet. That wouldn't happen for several months later. And I'm so thankful it didn't happen at that time. Now, if he comes for the church, I won't be left behind. Praise the Lord. Now, when it comes to the timing of wrath, this is a very important issue. When does the wrath of God upon planet Earth in the tribulation begin? The beginning of the tribulation, halfway through, three-quarters of the way through, or at the very end? I think biblically we will see that it happens throughout all seven years of, his, of this tribulation time. I think uh, Pastor Kevin's going to expand on this tomorrow with the events of the tribulation. But as you look at the book of Revelation in particular, you will see in chapter 6 that it sets forth the seven seals, and then eventually in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 and following, you'll see the trumpets. Those are judgments of God. And then the really intense judgments called the bull judgments come in the second half of the tribulation. But some will say, well, it's only those bull judgments or later that the wrath of God actually comes. The seal judgments and trumpets are not necessarily his wrath. And that is just simply false. And I'll let uh, Pastor Kevin develop this tomorrow. But what you will see very clearly in Revelation is that when each seal is broken, it is clearly the wrath of God. 
In fact, it's the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I lied. I, let's go to Revelation 6. I can't help myself. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short in this section, Kevin. I'll leave it for you, brother. But I do want to point out a couple of things. Let's just read the first couple of verses here. It says, verse 1 and 2, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. He is a false overcomer, whoever this individual is. I think it's the Antichrist. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, when they asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said, first thing, beware. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. False Christs. The Antichrist will arrive on the scene and we know that he's going to confirm that covenant with Israel that starts the tribulation period. Why does he come on a white horse? Again, he appears to be a victor, but he's a false victor or overcomer. He's obviously not saved. Don't you find it amazing that the very first thing God says I'm going to unleash on the world is an antichrist? You say, well, that doesn't seem right. Why would God give the world an antichrist? Well, he's giving the world over to what it wants. So many of the judgments of God and the wrath of God come in the form of God giving man over to what he wants. Romans 1 is a great example of that, right? With the homosexuality that's recorded there. And so what the world wants is a savior who will save us from all our political, social problems apart from addressing our greatest need of a spiritual problem regarding sin. That was true of the Jews when Jesus came the first time. That'll be true at the second coming as well. And then we see following this, we're not going to read the verses, but there will be global war that breaks out. There will be massive inflation and starvation and famine. There will be pestilence and disease. And by the fourth seal, one quarter of the earth's population has died. If that were to happen today, with 8 billion people on the planet, 2 billion people would be dead by the fourth seal, and we're only a little ways into the tribulation here. How can that not be the wrath of God? In fact, I want you to notice this. Who is the one who pops open the first seal? In fact, every seal here. Jesus Christ, the worthy one, the one who laid down his life for us first. That's why he's worthy to open the seals, because he first gave his himself and his life for the sins of the world. That's why he's qualified to come back and judge the world, those who've rejected him. He opens the seals. So gentle Jesus, as some people view him, he's the one who comes back with great wrath here. Or opens these seals, rather, with wrath. And you see that with each of the seals. It says, he opened, he opened, he opened. This is clearly his wrath. Now, when it comes to these other views, besides the pre-trib rapture view, they all have the church going through some degree of wrath. Some will say, well, this is the first half is, is Satan's wrath or man's wrath. But really, we've seen if the lamb is the one controlling everything, it's his wrath. In fact, they recognize that by the midpoint of the tribulation, or I should say by the, by the last seal that's broken in verse 17. 
save us from the wrath to come. Only the pre-trib view has the church being exempt from all of God's wrath. So the sealed judgments of Revelation 6 are the beginning of God's tribulation wrath, number one, because the one who breaks the seven seals is none other than Jesus Christ, not man or Satan. Secondly, I would say this, that the first four seals, sword, the Antichrist, and then it goes on to mention actually others, sword or war, famine, pestilence or plague, wild beasts, within those first four seals, actually it would be seals two, three, and four. But these are repeatedly identified in the Old Testament as the instruments of God's wrath upon mankind. In fact, the prophets speak of them as God's four sore judgments. Well, that's clearly God's wrath, not Satan or man's wrath. Thirdly, the extent of the judgment is controlled from heaven. When you have cataclysmic events like, you know, the blood moon and the stars falling from the sky and etc. That is not Satan's doing at that point. He can't control that. That must be from God. In fact, even the world recognizes that at the very end when they say, hide us. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And they know this is the wrath of Jesus Christ. And so even the unsaved world recognizes that it's the Lamb's wrath that has come. And that's a very important statement there in verse 17. The great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Has come is in what's called an aorist indicative in the Greek text. It's the form usually grammatically to describe an event that's happened in the past. So at that point, within the first half of the tribulation, clearly God's wrath has already come. It's not speaking of what is yet to come in the second half of the tribulation. So the church is exempt from all of God's wrath. Fifthly, here's another evidence for a pre-trib rapture view that uh, Pastor Rox will develop in the next session. And that is that the Bible speaks of the imminency of Christ's coming for believers in several passages. Especially in the book of Revelation. You see several there. Now, imminent doesn't mean that he will come soon necessarily, or that he must come immediately. But what it means is that there's nothing else that must happen before he can come back. So for 2,000 years of church history, the church has been watching and waiting for him to come at any moment. And only the pre-trib rapture view is consistent with that. All the other views have the church going through some wrath and having other things happen before Christ can come back. Here's a sixth reason why I think the Bible supports a pre-trib rapture view, and that is through a, a variety of biblical inferences or deductions. I mentioned the Trinity before as an example of a valid deduction. Well, let's look at a pattern throughout history of how God has removed his own before times of judgment. Wasn't that true with Enoch? He was removed from the earth before the flood came. Now we know that it was his will for Noah to go through the flood period with his family. But what about Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed? Even righteous Lot, he had the imputed righteousness put to his account by faith, but he wasn't practically righteous, was he? He was caught up in the worldly environment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he was delivered by the, those angels 
before the destruction hit. What about Rahab with the city of Jericho? She had come to believe and she was spared from that. So we have some pattern there. We also have the example of the sheep and goats judgment that Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46 describes. This is where Jesus Christ has come back to the earth, at his return to the earth. He is going to set up his kingdom, but the first thing he has to do is judge between the sheep and the goats. This is kind of similar to wheat and tares, but the sheep are those believers during the tribulation time who are Gentiles, who are shown to be believers by their treatment of Israel or the Jews during that time of intense persecution of Israel. Whereas the unbelievers didn't do any of those good deeds towards Israel like the sheep do. So the unbelieving Gentiles are described as goats. Now the point here is this, that if Jesus Christ has to come back and separate the sheep from the goats, as Matthew 25 says, how does that fit prophetically? One problem for a post-trib rapture view is that if the rapture and return was one event with no interval, then there'd be no need to separate sheep and goat at that judgment. It would have already happened at that point by virtue of Jesus Christ coming to the earth. So the rapture or catching up of all the sheep would have already separated the sheep from the goats. And you wouldn't need the separate judgment in Matthew 25. So that's a problem, at least for the post-trib view. Another thing we see is the pattern in the book of Revelation that describes the things past, Revelation 1.19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. This sets forth a threefold division within the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, John, is in chapter 1, his vision of Jesus Christ. The things which are speaks of the church age and the addresses to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and then things which shall be or take place after this are future events, chapters 4 through the end of the book. Keep that structure in mind. Past, present, and future. Now, where does the church fit and the rapture fit? I think if the church is going to be raptured, wouldn't you expect it to occur after chapter 3? Yes. If the tribulation hits in chapter 6 with the opening of the first seal, like we already read, where would you put the church then, raptured and in heaven? Well, it must be described in chapters 4 and 5, and in fact, it is. And this is a valid inference. Revelation 4, it says in verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So they're seated, their work is done. These are saints who've walked the earth, now their earthly ministry is rewarded. They have crowns, they've already gone through the process of being rewarded. They have white garments, described of the church. And 24 elders, you might say, well, why 24 if this represents the whole church? Well, in the Old Testament, King David set up an order of the priests where they served in orders of 24, because there were so many priests, there had to be some structure to this. And I think these elders represent the church who are called kings and priests to our God. 
and we will serve in these orders. And of course, we take our crowns and cast them at the Lord's feet in worship of him. Now, does it say that these 24 elders here are the church? No, it doesn't say that in Revelation. But again, this is a valid deduction. Who else can they be if they don't represent the church? They can't be uh, angels. They're not uh, saints from other ages. Old Testament saints are not called elders, per se, like we have in the epistles describing church leaders. Here's another important passage in Revelation 5, in that gap again between Revelation 2 and 3 describing the church and Revelation 6 describing the beginning of the tribulation. In chapter 5 of Revelation, we see the church in heaven, seated, rewarded, but notice our song. Our song will be a song of redemption and praise to the Lamb. Revelation 5.9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so it's describing a universal body, not just the Jews or Israel from one nation. So these are church-age saints in heaven. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth in that future time after our return to the earth with Christ. So again, you have these descriptions in this interval that fit with the church being in heaven. Here's another evidence of this deduction. When you look at the pattern of distribution of references to the church, we see there are several in Revelation 1 through 5. But in that section of Revelation that deals with the tribulation, you see many references to Israel or the Jews, 26 of them in Revelation 6 through 19, but there are no references to the church. Why not? Because we're not there on the earth during that time. We're gone. It's a very conspicuous change in number of references. Now, that's a deduction, I know, but is it a valid deduction? I would say it's very, very convincing. Here's a fifth inference or deduction. And it is the fact that in the epistles written to the church, there are no instructions for the church to get prepared for this time of unprecedented testing that is coming upon the world. You would think if God cares for his church, wouldn't he tell us to prepare? But he doesn't. Why? Now, you can prep all you want as far as events prior to the rapture. Go ahead. That might be wise. And, of course, there's disagreement among believers. How much should we do, this or that? But the fact is he never tells us to prepare for the tribulation. And I think that's significant. In addition, as we'll see in the next session, the church epistles never tell us to watch for signs of Jesus Christ coming back. Now, there are, there's stage setting, as we'll learn, but we are never told to watch for a particular sign for Jesus Christ to come back at the rapture. That is a signless event. And I often have or, or hear of believers, like this graphic shows here, signs that Jesus Christ is coming soon. We, people talk about that all the time, even believers I hear using that language. There are no signs for the rapture. Now here's the last reason to support pre-trib view. If you're not already thoroughly convinced at this point. Sometimes I hear people say, just show me one verse. In fact, I remember a guy 20 years ago or so came to Duluth Bible Church, visited for a day, and he wanted to argue afterwards about the rapture. And so 
he picked the wrong crowd in the wrong church. Because <laughs> I remember me and a few others, we were standing in a circle around this guy, but he was really argumentative. Frankly, he had it coming. But I remember him saying, show me just one verse in the whole Bible that says the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. I said, well, all right, you asked for one verse. Let's talk about it. Let's go to Revelation 3 and verse 10. Here is a promise we can hang on to if you're looking for one verse. Here's your silver bullet. Where to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And in the next section, he goes on to talk about his coming right after this. So clearly it's second coming or rapture context. But notice, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And the Greek preposition here is ek, from, not dia, through. Had he meant that the church is going to go through this time of testing, but I'll be with you and I'll, I'll comfort you and I'll protect you through the trial, like Noah going through the flood and the ark, he would have used a different preposition. And here's where language is so essential. And it's not merely through the, through the testing or the trial itself, but notice from the hour of it, from the very time of it. The only way for this promise to be fulfilled is for the church to be removed from earth, time, space, dimension, and be with the Lord in heaven. And notice the purpose of this trial. It's not just the typical trials we go through and the testings that we endure as a church, and the church has gone through tremendous testing through the ages, 2,000 years. But this is the particular time that's coming upon the whole world, the unprecedented time of tribulation. And notice the purpose of it is to test those who dwell on the earth. So the point of all this, dear saints, is to show you this. Your hope, your blessed hope of Jesus Christ coming at the rapture is not based on fiction. It is based on fact, shown over and over from every which way you can look at it in the word of God. Don't let anyone rob you of that hope. And keep looking for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today and uh, the things we've seen. We pray that as believers we would just keep uh, our, our blessed hope fixed on Jesus Christ as our hope and not let anyone rob us of that. Thank you for the confidence that your word provides and we stand upon it by faith. And even so, come Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.